Hi, I'm Jahada Weaver, and you're listening to Tech Mirror. My guest today is Professor Kieran Martin. Kieran was the first CEO of the UK's National Cyber Security Centre, which is part of the GCHQ. For those of you in Australia, this is the partner organisation to the Australian Cyber Security Centre, part of the Australian Signals Directorate. Kieran has since retired uh, from that role and he is currently the Professor of Practice in the Management of Public Organisations at Oxford University. Kieran, we are absolutely delighted that you're able to join us today. Thanks for having me, John. It's great to be here. So we thought we would ease us into a chat with a question that we ask most of our guests, which is just to take you on a trip down memory lane to share a little about the first time that you encountered a computer or that maybe the first time you encountered the internet. It's something that's so embedded in our lives these days and we forget that there was a time when when it wasn't there. Well, my confession is I am non-technical and so my background in computing um was not one that led me to be an obvious choice to be head of the National Cybersecurity Centre. In fact, when I was brought out to GCHQ, I almost argued against my own appointment. We might come on to that. Um, uh, I um, didn't spend a great deal of my youth on um, computers. We sometimes had some at home. We had the delightful BBC micro uh, computers, uh, which were common um, in educational uh, circles. We used to get old ones that schools were um, finished uh, with, but we used to sort of play games. And so my brother did quite a lot of coding and programming. I did a little bit, wasn't very good, and um, sort of abandoned it and went into arts degrees. Um, I then, when I uh, joined the um, uh, uh, civil service, uh, it was just at the dawn of the age of the internet. And actually in junior roles, you're doing quite a lot of parliamentary uh, research. So I do remember that sort of um, transformation from being in the dungeons, looking at Hansard to just looking at it online. Then as I encountered national security roles a bit more in the mid 2000s, I remember just um, people as I went on to become making it harder for, to use, uh, for you to use the internet because of this thing called security. And, um, but um, uh, to sort of sum it all up, there was a glorious moment where um, when I um, went to GCHQ in the role that became um, uh, head of the National Cybersecurity Centre, but that was my idea, so um, that wasn't the role I joined. Um, I was actually sent out because I'd done a lot of sort of policy troubleshooting in the Cabinet Office, the equivalent of the Australian PM&C uh, on national security um, uh, uh, issues, and Snowden had just hit, and of course the Five Eyes uh, SIGINT agencies were all in crisis, and they'd been very secretive up to that point, still are but not nearly as secretive as they used to be uh, pre-Snowden. And um, you know, uh, because of that secrecy, they didn't have, you know, uh, sort of press offices, you know, big legal departments, big policy departments. And now um, the, the, the little press function, for example, had been um, used to dealing with the Gloucestershire Echo about the sort of, you know, community events in Cheltenham and now it was getting calls from the Washington Post and Der Spiegel and you know, the Sydney Morning News and uh, so forth, uh, not just the British uh, papers. Parliament was demanding a review of legislation and so on. So I was sent out to manage that and they said, but you know, you could have a long-term future here doing cybersecurity. So I remember talking to a friend, I was 39 at the time and I'd known this guy since I was four. We went to elementary primary school together and I was talking to him about this job and seeing what his reaction would be and he just said, but what do you know about computers? Um, so the answer was not very much. Um, uh, some would say um, 
uh, uh, some would say that that's um, still the case. The more serious point in it is that cybersecurity, I think, um, it's now widely um, recognized that, um, I mean, there is no substitute for deep technical expertise. And the people that were there in GCHQ who became the bedrock of the NCSC were just some of the best technologists and operational cybersecurity people in the world. And they were absolutely amazing. Um, but in terms of things like um, incentives, getting policies right, uh, strategy, we were doing quite a lot wrong. And sort of, you know, I spent quite a lot of time trying to learn at least enough of the technology to talk to the technologists, but also try and find ways of communicating that to the policymakers. And that was the niche that I occupied. And it was right place, right time. I think, you know, over time, I hope more people. Um, in generalist civil service roles like me, people who are 25 years younger than me uh, will have more computing skills. And I think the education system should be reconfigured that that, to make that the case. Um, but there'll always be, um, I think, a role for uh, people occupying that space where you know the detailed tech meets the real world. And that's where I've been. And it's interesting hearing you describe that path because I think increasingly there are people looking to what has happened in cybersecurity and the increasing presence of policy and diversity of people engaged in the making of cybersecurity policy and driving better cybersecurity outcomes and saying, how do we mimic that in the broader tech policy environment? Um, and it's a conversation that I'm having quite regularly. So it's wonderful to hear your description of how you ended up there. One of the things that I that really stood out to me when I read through uh, bio, Kieran, was that you describe you, well, you just described yourself there as a generalist, um, and you've had elements of your career in the security services. You've worked in the cabinet office, in the treasury, and you say that the constant theme through all of this has been the promotion of responsible and values-based government. And it just stood out to me because we talk about values in technology a lot now, but it hasn't always been the case. And I, I wonder if there was a point, and maybe it was during um, managing the fallout from the Snowden disclosures, but was there a point at which you suddenly realised the uh, that or had the realisation of the impact of or how embedded the values proposition is in technology? I think there were various points, but one would go back to I was doing a national security policy role um, way before Snowden, where um, a lot of it was around challenges to the actions of the security services post 9-11 and so forth. You know, there are all sorts of allegations about um, alleged complicity um, in alleged American mistreatment of detainees and things like that. But as part of that role, um, a new job in the cabinet office of director essentially of intelligence policy was uh, created. And I remember visiting um, the Metropolitan Police and they had a um, they had a very powerful uh, set of um, capabilities which were being used in things like, you know, um, countering kidnaps and so forth. Um, but um, part of the issue, and it's still a live uh, issue, particularly as we move towards things like facial recognition technologies, the fact that for a bunch of historical reasons, the UK in general and London, London in particular, has more closed circuit television cameras per square inch than pretty much anywhere in the, uh, uh, certainly anywhere in the Western um, uh, world. And I remember looking at that and, you know, you could have demonstrations um, uh, of the capability that were um, absolutely lawful where you just could see the power of, of, of this and you could see the power of it in operations. And there was a live kidnap operation um, going on at the moment where this stuff was absolutely invaluable. But you could also see that you could just pick somebody up on a street. And I remember, you know, because it was a lawful demonstration, we were able to do that for a few seconds and so forth. And you could see that. And it was that classic, you know, this is possible there, but 
um, just because you can do something, uh, uh, should you? And if so, when and under what uh, um, uh, uh, circumstances? I suppose then, um, um, I think um, partly in terms of one of the sort of value issues that I um, became quite quite strong on, um, and this developed a lot uh, in the post-Snowden uh, phase, was about how you get you know, some form of informed citizen consent for this sort of thing. Um, and you know, in the case of the CCTV cameras, there was a very powerful capability there, and I think it was, and the police were beginning to take actually quite positive steps to explain how they used it. And it was always going to be controversial. In the case of Snowden, it was the other problem. It was the fact that nobody had thought in the really secret days, nobody had thought to say, look, we're building up this huge set of capabilities. They're very powerful. Um, so we're not going to tell you what exactly they are because that would blunt their effectiveness. We're going to sort of talk a little bit about the framework, the sorts of things we might do, the way they're controlled and so on. We didn't do that. And the the reason why that proved to be a mistake was that then when it was leaked by Snowden, it all came out on, if you like, um, on hostile terms. It was portrayed as an all-seeing, all-encompassing capability, which it just wasn't. I mean, you know, you would know that if um, if you know, Western governments were capable of gathering every bit of information on every citizen, synthesize it all together into this great picture of you and me and so forth, you would have noticed it by now. Um, it was actually a much more subtle uh, set of capabilities, but actually, you know, reputationally, we took a lot of damage and we had to um, uh, we had to you know do more to explain that um, uh, the way these actual capabilities work so I just think in the 21st century in a less deferential age where people quite rightly this is a good thing are willing to challenge you know the power and authorities of the state I think when governments use technology for security they need to you know you can't obviously say look this is the way we use this particular capability because then the capability is useless but I think you have to talk to people proactively and you know it's not the sort of thing that will excite um, uh, tabloid newspapers, but it will interest some parliamentarians, it will interest um, civic uh, groups. You know, I remember then the lesson of that, when we started to do cybersecurity, I mean, you know, as per the previous answer, uh, one of the sort of magical things that we started doing was fusing bits of policy um, uh, expertise with um, the technical expertise. And so um, everybody in cybersecurity when I started was banging on about information sharing as a solution to everything. and um, a few of us got together and I said, look, you know, I don't understand the tech the way you guys do, but I've been here a year and everybody's talking about information sharing. They've been talking about information sharing for the last they 10 years. They still are. <laughs> they still are. But, you know, I, but they're talking about it as the panacea to it. What's the evidence for this? And I said, well, we're so glad you said that because actually we're wondering um, about this. And so we said, well, instead of just, you know, information sharing has its place, but let's do something else. So we started looking at things that the market wasn't solving. Um, because there was no commercial incentive uh, to. So we started looking at things such as blocking dodgy domains from um, distributing their emails because they were clearly spoofing uh, them, uh, blocking access to known malicious destinations, and stuff like that sounds pretty scary from a civil liberties point of view. So learning the lessons of that period, we actually you know, invited in some of the NGOs that were uh, interested in civil liberties. We treated them respectfully. They treated us respectfully. They didn't always agree with what we were doing. But if we hadn't done that, then I think they could... 
um, legitimately have said that under the auspices of cybersecurity, the state was building some new mass surveillance system, which we weren't. There were aspects of it they didn't like, and they put up, and we published details and they published responses. But it was a respectful, constructive dialogue. And actually, to their credit, when we did all of this stuff, the um, uh, the civil liberties organisations um, said there's stuff about this we don't like, but it's not a new all-encompassing surveillance system. It's just not. So I think you need to engage. You need to have a little bit more transparency and you need to show people that ultimately you are doing what is necessary to secure free and open communications, not using the threat to free and open communications as a ruse by which to um, uh, by which to curtail you know, individual freedoms and liberties. I think that's really, really important. And that's where the values uh, come in. Mm. And I, I definitely think I love the phrase you use the in a less deferential age and the age of security services or intelligence services, as we would refer to it in Australia, saying trust us is certainly over. And I, I think that is actually a good thing as long as there is respectful contestability uh, in that space, which is partly why we invited you on uh, for today's podcast is because you're in quite a unique position. So when I was in Talon at SciCon, I had the opportunity to interview the spokesperson for Cyber Partisans, the Belarusian hacktivist group. And that podcast raised all sorts of interesting and thorny ethical questions about the activities of groups that are non-state actors. And we wanted to have on somebody who could speak in an informed way from a, you know, knowing what it was actually like on the inside, but also someone who has a little bit more freedom to be able to actually speak about these issues, which is why we were delighted when you uh, agreed to come on. Perhaps before we dive into some of those more thorny questions, we can just do a little bit of scene setting in terms of the situation and where we're at in terms of the use of cyber operations in Ukraine. So what's your view? There's a lot of commentary um, about this and, and, you know, increasingly we're seeing more and more evidence of cyber operations playing a role on the ground in Ukraine. What's your position on the role of cyber? Has it played out the way that you expected to? What are some uh, sort of key lessons that you're taking out of it? Well, we will be studying those of us in the field you, me, others will be studying this for years to come. So I think all conclusions are preliminary at the minute because sadly the war is still very much going on. I think um, you know one thing I expected, but um, and probably you expected, but plenty of others <clears throat> less familiar with the field uh, might not have, was that it is um, uh, cyber is a less dramatic feature of the conflict than some may have thought. There was a lot of you know, pretty excitable. Uh, commentary in the run-up to the invasion and the early days after it about you know the first cyber war and that um, um, and that it would drag in the West and come back to that um, um, in particular and you know sadly as we're reminded on a daily basis um, the decisive factors in this conflict have been pretty traditional in their brutality and horror um, so um, and I think you know those of us who understood cyber capabilities aren't that surprised by that I mean you know I always try to distinguish now it's an imperfect distinction but I always try and explain to people who are much less familiar with the discussion of you know if you think sometimes people say well we're moving away from traditional infantry towards high-tech weapons and cyber High-tech weapons and cyber aren't the same thing. You know, a high-tech missile is just a higher-tech version of a lower-tech missile. It still hits something, destroys it, possibly kills or hurts people. Um, a cyber capability is some code, and it depends what you do with it, and it depends what happens at the other end. Um, 
and so it's very you know very much a sort of secondary capability and when you look at the course of the conflict so far and you look at the big turning points and decisive moments it's pretty hard to think of a you know identifiable cyber event either one that's been you know obvious to see as some cyber incidents are or widely rumored as you know sort of stuxnet type thing you know that everybody knows about even if nobody officially says it happens and uh, and, and and so on um so that's the one thing that um, I think you know we would have expected that it was um, you know an important but secondary capability on 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 both sides, and you saw that with Russia and the Viasat hack at the start of the conflict. You know, a very classic sort of clinical operation designed to um, uh, designed to weaken Ukraine's um, military communications uh, uh, system. I think the thing that slightly surprised me a little bit was the um, absence of, so far at least identifiably, of any sort of escalatory action against the West. Now, to some extent, again, the bit where this didn't surprise me was I don't, I reject the sort of characterization of cyber. We can do things secretly and unattributably all the time, you know. So uh, that, you know, uh, Russia would do things to the West in cyberspace that wouldn't dare do in the real world. Well, I don't really buy that um, because, you know, if there was a major attack on US critical infrastructure that bore all the hallmarks of a sophisticated nation state attack and was doing all sorts of damage or in the UK or you know one of the big NATO countries um, I don't think it would take people terribly long to work out who'd done it and I don't see why the consequences of that would have been any different from say you know another horror like Salisbury and the chemical weapons attack or uh, you know an accidental incursion over a border or or uh, or, or what have you you know um, the, the Western country. So I'm, I'm not surprised Russia hasn't done, you know, pretty overt aggression. Um, I'm a little surprised, pleasantly, that, um, you know, uh, the ransomware operators arguing under, if you like, the tacit license of the Russian state who caused so much havoc in 2021 seem to have been quieter. And um, a little surprised that there hasn't been a little bit more sort of you know, tentative cyber disruption uh, from uh, the Russian state. And then the bit that I think has surprised all of us, and I know this is what you said that we might go on to talk about, is if you like the information contest with a myriad of um, uh, different actors, you know, non-state uh, states where, you know, Ukraine is not just giving as good as it gets, and, um, but probably winning that side of the uh, contest. Although, again, I would be slightly cautious about that characterization and that they're certainly not losing and they're certainly winning in terms of, you know, the battle for Western hearts and minds, whether they're influencing opinion in Russia itself is something else. And of course, that's what matters in terms of, you know, bringing the conflict to some form of um, uh, conclusion. So, yeah, those, those, those three things, you know, I think it's... Um, it's forced us into more realistic appraisal of what cyber capabilities are in war. Um, they're not magic. Um, um, they're a sort of important secondary capability. Um, um, there's been less against the West, but I suppose that's because Russia's trying not to drag the West directly into the conflict in most ways, so it's probably not going to do it in cyber. And then I think it is very, very interesting what's happening in the um, uh, in the um, uh, contested information domain, in particular the non-state uh, elements of it. So before we move on to the the non-state elements, to what extent do you think that a calculation of the risk of escalation is impacting Putin's decisions on the use of uh, cyber tools? Or you know, you referred to the fact that you're you know surprised that the ransomware gangs maybe aren't as active as you we had seen last year. One might think, and it is a major might, that there is some element of control that has been um, or a directive being given for them to avoid escalation. 
there is quite a lot of commentary that to that effect. There's also quite a lot of commentary that says that level of command and control just simply doesn't exist. Where do you sit on that spectrum? Again, um, and by the way, I should have said congratulations on your excellent and really well-received Psycom presentation and all of this. Um, um, I, again, um, will be studying it for years, and I think it's hard to know definitively because you know, understanding it requires some knowledge of Kremlin decision-taking, which I don't have, and I'm sure not many people have, and those who do probably aren't allowed to say what they know. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. so, um, but I think it's... The lack, um, so I think the lack of escalation, particularly against the West, is probably part of it. Um, but I think there are other factors as well, potentially, and it, it's probably a combination of all of them. So part of it is, um, I mean, firstly, we should acknowledge that Russia did do some um, you know, really uh, targeted, some medium quality, some high quality operations against Ukraine at the start. Uh, secondly, there is, of course, the supposition that um, Russia was assuming a quick military conquest and therefore you didn't need a lot of cyber um, and actually you'd want to leave the internet infrastructure of Ukraine as touched as possible so you could use it and govern the country once you've um, occupied it. Um, there is something about, you know, if the overall um, if the overall campaign was badly prepared and badly planned, then why should cyber be any different? Um, particularly when you take the lead times for cyber operations. You know, if you look at the power grids, if you look at the work of, say, Leonard Mashmeyer in Zurich, um, uh, who has studied um, the two power grid outages in 2015 and 2016 in Kyiv um, and said that you know the first one took 18 months to plan the second took 31 months to plan and execute um, well if you're you know if if if, if you're not um, uh, if you're not ready you're not going to do a sophisticated cyber operation in a couple of weeks and indeed there was another um, attempt in the Ukrainian power grid but instead of taking 18 months to plan and execute it they took two weeks and funnily enough it wasn't very good um, so there's there, there's that sort of um, element as well but I think part of it does go back I mean I heard Rob Lee of Dragos say that you know an ex US military person say that you know part of it is <clears throat> You envisage that meeting where the military commander or the president says, what are my options against this um, broadcasting facility? And the Air Force person says, well, now that we're in a full-scale invasion, I can fly over it and bomb it and be back within 48 hours with a 98% chance of success. And the cyber person says, give me six months and I'll give you a 70% chance of partial disruption. So there's an element of that, I think, in, in, um, in, in, in all of it. That's about Ukraine. I do still think, though, that um, there there is a bit where you know we talk a lot about the efficacy of attribution you know is attribution worth the hassle and all the rest of it um um is it worth the risk of getting it wrong etc because it's you know it's hard um but i think actually um although it's really hard to prove this it's impossible to prove it i think um i think this is potentially showing some of the advantages of attribution because the russian state knows that uh the uk the us australia nato countries uh, some NATO countries are willing to put in a lot of the time and effort to study Russian TTP, to get to know the actors, to publish details of what they do, and to prove to um, to the satisfaction of many objective experts that this is Russian state activity. Therefore, that you can't do it on you can't do some of this stuff unattributably. So um, it removes. As I was saying earlier, it removes that sort of sense of magic secret capability from cyber. In other words, look, if you want to provoke America, then you know you can do counter sanctions, you can do some risky human operation on U.S. soil, 
uh, or you can do a cyber attack, but you, cyber doesn't give you something that you can get away with um, uh, that the others don't. So I think maybe, um, I, I do think to answer your question, and, uh, with apologies, a slightly long-winded way, uh, that risk of escalation, uh, because we now are willing to attribute and um, at least try to impose some sort of uh, response, uh, I think it is part of the story. Part of what we focus on in this podcast is the, the policy elements. And I think the story of attribution is one that has kind of, you know, we take almost for granted now that countries are willing to, when the circumstances and when the incident is serious enough, that they will stand up and say China did it or Russia did it or Iran did it or DPRK did it. But actually, until 2017 in Australia, at least, we had never done that. We always said, you know, we will not comment on intelligence matters. And that is, you know, quite a significant significant development in a period of just over um, five years of policy potentially having an impact in terms of shaping behaviour. And certainly in the UN negotiations I was involved in, Russia became allergic to the words attribution and response, which I think are as close as you will get, Kieran, to evidence of your theory that you have just, just put forward. Now, it wouldn't be a, a podcast talking about cyber Ukraine from Australia without asking the question of what do you think uh, China is learning uh, from what's unfolding in Ukraine? Very interested in your perspectives um, from that, uh, particularly in the context of, of Taiwan and any potential Chinese activity in that space. It's interesting, and I don't want to sort of... Um overdo this because you know i'm not a military i keep talking about things i'm not and i'm not a military strategist or military expert but i think that you know if there was anyone uh, in the very chinese humble as well sorry go for it <laughs> <laughs> but if there was anyone in the chinese system that thought that you know having a large uh, cyber capability somehow you know made it easier to you know, conquer to the point of permanent occupation you know a rich island of <clears throat> You know, several million uh, pro-independence uh, people. You know, having some sophisticated computer capabilities doesn't really make that much easier. Um, and I think they will understand that. Um, I think from the Taiwanese uh, point of view, um, um, based on the Russian experience of invading Ukraine, they will know that you know the cybersecurity of things like air defense systems are absolutely critically important. I'm sure they knew that anyway, but it's a pretty useful uh, reminder um, 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 uh, 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 for them. So I think, you know, it will be a reminder that, um, you know, harassing uh, countries with whom you are, towards whom you are hostile and actually conquering um, a landmass are very very different um, uh, things. I think one of the things we've got to um, um, uh, keep track of, though, is, you know, I mean, uh, sadly, you know, there is a much much wider sort of tech context beyond, um, and global security context beyond uh, Ukraine um, at the minute. And... I know various policymakers worry about, you know, uh, necessarily having to focus on the attention of uh, focusing attention on Russia, which, in the analogy beloved of British security chiefs at the moment, is severe bad weather, uh, and not uh, therefore focusing on China, which is uh, which is climate change, and you see that a little bit, I think, and for example, and you mentioned some of the UN negotiations, you see that a little bit in the discussion around norms, 
um, uh, in cyberspace. And I find it really interesting. So um, there's a lawfare piece by me and Dr. Andrew Dwyer uh, recently where, you know, amongst other things, we're looking at the UK Attorney General's speech on uh, lawful context in cyberspace. She doesn't really name many countries very often. Um, but um, all the activities she talks about is basically Russian. It's the sort of stuff Russia does, you know, disrupting, you know, energy grids, um, criminals dis based in Russia, disrupting healthcare systems. And actually, if you read it by omission, all the stuff that the West has been screaming about, including Australia and in one of its first attributions with the UK and the US, you know, Chinese IP theft and you know, the undermining of Western economies is completely skated over. And actually, if you look at the, if, if, if you look at the substance of her speech, it's almost saying, well, you know, Russia does all of this and that's wrong and would violate any set of international norms. But um, it doesn't actually, you know, we've gone from a position in 2015 when President Obama was more or less threatening sanctions against President Xi for intellectual property theft or the fact that, you know, the British government has just said almost by its silence legitimized them, um, uh, legitimized that. So I think we need to, we need to keep our uh, focus on, on that. The big change that I see in China, um, and this was very much um, in the last two years of my time, I mean, it crystallized around the Huawei 5G uh, issue, but it was much, much bigger um, than that. Was that, you know, if I take the first sort of four of my six and a half years running UK cybersecurity operations, uh, and you think about China in that period, um, for the first sort of four years, we were thinking of China as, um, I mean, operationally, it was quite hard as a cyber adversary, but conceptually, it was dead easy. So China had this huge, um, um, you know, army of um, hostile computer network exploiters, um, many of them directly working for the military in the 3PLA with traditional espionage objectives, some, but not as much as Russia, disruptive objectives, but mostly sort of economic espionage for, um, and so forth. And your job was to try and make it as hard for them as possible um, and make sure they got as little as possible out of you. And you know, some days you'd win, some days they'd win, um, because that's the way attritional cyber contests um, work. Towards the end of the period, though, I mean, that was almost priced in as business as usual for us as government, for big business, you know, and so forth. Um, and we were much more thinking about, um, uh, unlike Russia, and this is where the chi uh, climate change versus severe bad weather comes in, you know, Russia does not have its own internet. Russia just cheats on the one that America built. China, um, you know, it's got a handful, Russia's got a handful of interesting AV companies and that's about it. China has this whole tech system, massively subsidized, which, you know, has come from pretty much nothing 25 years ago to being something that um, it has realistic ambitions to compete with the US for global leadership of tech. It operates very differently. It's more statist. It's easier to um, control. Um, uh, and of course now, you know, the internet is splitting into two technospheres where you know the, the um, uh, China is competing for sort of influence. Taiwan is obviously at the center of that with all the sanctions and chip manufacturing stuff, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And what's interesting about that is that it goes way beyond cybersecurity. You know, cybersecurity of components and so on is is part of that, but it's about trade, it's about diplomacy. The challenge for the West is that you know, and you know, the West has some inbuilt advantages, free markets spurring innovation being the, um, uh, the 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 main one you know the consumer signal this is what we want and therefore uh, uh, this is what um, uh, you should build but um, China has some advantages too this huge domestic market subsidies um, uh, deep pockets intellectual property theft and um, no need to worry about elections um, uh, um, uh, whereas you know um, and if you take the 5g 
um, uh, crisis over infrastructure. At the heart of that was the fact that the Western market was far too fragmented and basically there were very few options for Western uh, companies. And how do you manage having industrial capability, particularly in hardware, in things like AI, you know, um, synthetic biology, whatever you have, all these emerging technologies that China wants to dominate as per the Made in China 2025 strategy. How do you manage that across the West <clears throat> without interfering unduly in free markets? And my question is always, um, if you look at, so the, I think leaders now get this, you know, Washington gets it, London gets it, Canberra gets it, but if you look at the G7 declaration from the Cornwall summit in the summer of 2021, it's beautifully and elegantly written about this challenge, expresses it way better than I just did. The problem is, if that were a NATO summit, you know, the NATO bureaucracy and a bunch of defense ministries would then cooperate on some actions afterwards. It's a G7 summit. What happens afterwards? There's no infrastructure. That's not a criticism. The G7 is basically an economic sort of, you know, collaborative uh, uh, body. But, you know, we're, we're designed to compete with each other in a friendly and open way under under clear rules. So how do you, how do you make tech markets work? Uh, in a way that sustains Western free open industrial capability against this challenge is a really, really hard international public policy problem. So that's where um, that's where I think, you know, the Chinese challenge really is now, you know, um, just seeing off its three PLA is, um, you know, a relatively simple problem compared to that. Oh, Kieran, I can feel a rabbit hole appearing because yeah, uh, everything, no, 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 everything you have just discussed is something that I'm actually writing on right now. So this uh, concept of if you were are to compare the two systems, and I love your description of tech, two technospheres, um, you have on the Chinese side a system that is low cost, innovative and allows control. On our side, we still have very innovative technologies, but they tend to be more expensive and they really are not enabling control if anything they're facilitating chaos and so one of the things that I'm looking at at the moment is how do we actually rebrand both western technology but also the concept of democracy to make it something that is attractive to countries who are looking at these two propositions and making a choice about which technosphere they're going to be joining because of course once you join one or the other you can move about you can change but similar to when you choose between you know an apple or an android operator system moving between them is complicated and costly so <laughs> a really nice way a really nice analogy yeah. obvious, obvious when you've thought about it but i hadn't so thank you i have done a lot of thinking about this karen and i i think you are absolutely spot on that that this is something that western leaders have recognized but in the words of uh, elvis presley is something that we probably need a little bit less conversation and a little bit more action on there's some work forthcoming from me on that subject I would love to talk more about norm setting as well, but maybe we'll come back to that because I don't want to miss the opportunity to delve down into some of these issues, looking at the different types of groups that are non-state actors that are operating in this space. The conversation that I had with the Belarusian uh, cyber partisans was really eye-opening to me in the sense that this is a group of people who are passionate about bringing democracy to their country and using technology to help them to do that. And, you know, they this is a group that um, is largely Belarusian and they have claimed responsibility, for example, for interrupting Russian troop movements on the Belarusian railways using both cyber and kinetic means, which is interesting uh, in, uh, in terms of the combination. How do you contrast a group or do you contrast a group like cyber partisans with a group like Anonymous that 
has no leadership, doesn't really have command and control. In fact, they they pride themselves on not having the command and control, which, for example, claimed responsibility for the hack of Russian state TV, which was, you know, demonstrating for a very short period the carnage that Russia was wreaking in Ukraine. And then just to make it extra thorny for you, how do you distinguish between Cyber Partisans Anonymous and something like the Ukrainian IT army, where the uh, Ukrainian Defence Ministry has called on people to come to their aid and is organised through a telegram channel where Russian targets are listed for volunteers to be engaged in? They're, to me, three quite distinct sets of actors. Is it black and white or should we be distinguishing between them? This is an incredibly difficult and sensitive subject. And you mentioned humility. Um, I think I would start with some humility. You know, I'm not sitting in a country, either Ukraine, you know, where um, being invaded and people being killed in obscene numbers, uh, nor am I in Belarus with a <clears throat> brutal uh, regime. So, you know, sitting in <clears throat> the relative comfort of southern England, you know, I <clears throat> I sort of speak tentatively on this. I do think your categorization is helpful. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I do think your categorization is helpful and it is, um, <clears throat> uh, but there will be messy interfaces between them all, but I think trying to bring some sort of uh, <clears throat> conceptual order to it uh, does help us um, think about it. I think um, because of that humility, given the conditions that people in Belarus and people in Ukraine uh, face, I don't think you can say, look, um, because of the risks of escalation, because of the risks of uh, uh, accidental consequences, or because of the risks of this concept being misapplied in the future when the war is over, you, know, you shouldn't be doing this. Um, I don't think you can say that. It's just not fair to people in that situation. Um, uh, and also, what's the point? <laughs> you know, they're going to they're do it anyway. Um, so it does help to um, it does help to break it um, down. I'll probably do them in a slightly different order. The Ukrainian IT army, I think, is an interesting uh, construct. Where um, and again, you know, others, including yourself, will know more about the exact uh, details of this than than I will. But I think it's quite a careful uh, construct in that. And if you look at, for example, what Victor Jorov of the um, uh, Ukrainian Cybersecurity Industry uh, Agency has said in uh, public, the Ukrainians are very careful what they take ownership of and what they don't. Uh, so you know, the Ukrainian IT army will draw on um, um, will you know uh, draw on capabilities that aren't technically employed by the state, but it seems that they will try and exercise control and restraint so they aren't just people doing all sorts of uh, freelancing activity, which could go horribly uh, wrong and have unintended consequences. And therefore, you know, Ukrainians, and I think this is quite smart, um, are clever about what they will take responsibility for as the state and what they will not, even if they draw on the skills of people who are not wearing uniforms, who are not, possibly not even in uh, Ukraine. Um, so I think, um, um, of course, the risk there is that how on earth do you control that via a telegram uh, uh, channel? Um, but the risk management of it so far seems to have been uh, seems to have been okay. Then you turn to the Belarus cyber partisans, and even before, of course, the war, they were they were quite interesting. You know, they had leaked footage of. Um, alleged uh, apparent human rights abuses by the uh, regime. 
and I thought that was a really, really interesting development. And you saw some of it, um, some similar activity in Iran as well, where dissidents are using, if you like, the tools that are normally used by the state against dissidents. They were the dissidents were, if you like, using uh, those tools against the state. And again, it's really hard to complain about. Uh, it's really hard to complain about um, uh, that. I think there, because they're a non-state group, you know, you have to um, hope, but insofar as you can, talk to them, you know, encourage them to think in the way that a responsible state would about responsible behavior, you know, that you don't do things that could have um, the high risk of deeply unintended consequences, whether those are escalatory, accidental, precedent setting, and uh, and, and so forth. Um, but you would be, um, you know, given that there are ways of getting comfortable with that sort of activity. I think the anonymous type stuff is the hardest and um, um, potentially in precedent terms, the most, uh, the riskiest. Uh, you know, you can't really, it's hard really to um, say to the Ukrainians, no, you shouldn't draw in a controlled way on the services of volunteers. Um, um, it's certainly hard to say to people in Belarus who are prepared to take these horrendous risks to their own safety and that of their families, um, uh, that they shouldn't be, you know, trying to expose torture, they shouldn't be trying to slow down trains carrying lethal uh, weaponry. What would concern me is if there's lots of uncontrolled activity coming from all over the world, allegedly in support of Ukraine, um, with no uh, governance or risk management at all. Uh, and that would concern me essentially for two broad reasons. Uh, one is it could go, it could go badly wrong. Um, and the second is it does create a very, very difficult precedent um, because it appropriates to a bunch of people. Uh, you know, the Ukrainian government, um, the Ukrainian IT army is an internationally accountable entity. Um, if Belarus ever sees political reform, then the Belarusian cyber partisans presumably would aspire to become a regulated entity within a free and democratic uh, Belarus. Uh, a bunch of people who say, here's a situation in the global environment that I don't like, and therefore I'm going to take to my laptop to do something about it. Uh, if that precedent is accepted, then we're into quite difficult territory when it comes to anything from climate change to, um, you know, there were people having a go at the Royal Lifeboats Institute in the UK because they didn't like what they were doing to protect um, people making the, uh, migrants making the channel crossing. You know, is that legitimate because you don't like what the RNLI are doing to have a go at them? There are any number of um, actions that you could take because you don't like the politics of a particular situation. And that is, that's the area of this um, really queasy about. So I think your differentiation is actually really helpful because it shows that there are times where people who are not directly affiliated to a lawfully governed state um, can undertake activity responsibly and usefully in this type of situation. But there is a difference between that and just anybody having a go in any situation that they don't like. There will, of course, be horribly messy examples that will, you know, um, uh, that, that will test that differentiation. But I still think it's important to try to make it. Mm. And, and you know, I, I have a lot of empathy for Western officials who are, are coming out and, and making statements that, that, you know, we strongly discourage Australians becoming involved in, in the conflict via cyber means, etc. What I find interesting about that is that 
they're framing it as this would be a violation of Australian criminal law. And I find it interesting that there's very little commentary about the implications from international humanitarian law and the fact that if an Australian is a participant in the conflict, the risk of becoming a belligerent in the conflict and therefore a legitimate target under the laws of armed conflict. And I just, I find that it's an observation that I make of, of a lot of the current conversation to the extent that anyone is actually willing to engage in a public conversation on these issues. And I really commend you, uh, Kieran, for, for doing it. You made the point about drawing in a controlled manner on volunteers. And you also made the point that this is going to happen, that you know, this type of activity is happening. So do you think we need to be considering particular policy, regulatory or doctrine updates to harness those volunteers in that controlled way? You've mentioned some criteria there. Would there be anything that you would be thinking about that from a policy and a regulatory perspective, rather than just sort of saying, oh, we, we discourage you from doing this, um, how can we actually potentially harness it? I think there's something in that that's worthy of serious study. And it sounds like I'm dodging the question. And to some extent, I am, because I think it's very hard to specify uh, what such a framework would look like. But there's something about, you know, there's something about where the effort of experts in the field is directed and where the effort of governments, uh, where the efforts of government are directed. And sometimes whether it's, you know, I mean, for example, in a completely separate field, I think sometimes when we talk about global governance of the internet, we don't talk enough about people's duty to protect the security of the infrastructure. Separate issue. But, you know, we talk an awful lot about um, uh, you're not stealing intellectual property, but we don't really talk about duty to protect infrastructure. Here, if you look at, you mentioned international humanitarian law, there's an awful lot of discussion around things like, well, you know, you don't attack um, hospitals. And I can see why, but there's quite evocative stuff around, well, you know, this thing about, you know, um, hospitals will stop working in war zones because their power will be disconnected and, you know, people will die in the middle of operating theatres. And as we've seen from this conflict, whilst that is a possibility, actually the nature of cyber capabilities means that that doesn't happen very often, at least yet. So. In some respects, I would encourage the international, in the light of the experience of the Russian-Ukraine war, I would encourage some of the effort on international law on sort of cyber conflict, moving away from just, you know, in a sense, repeating, let's not attack hospitals, uh, towards towards some of these really thorny issues. Um, you know, we, we now have, uh, uh, and that's a combination of domestic law, as you say, there'll be people in Australia, in the UK, there'll be people all over the place talking about, um, you know, their own citizens and how it interacts with domestic law. Um, but um, what are the circumstances in which it is legitimate? What are the responsibilities in somebody like the Ukrainian IT army um, on you know, the Belarus uh, cyber uh, 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 partisans? Where might lines be drawn if it is possible to draw lines? And I think it would be useful. And I don't, I mean, it's not, it's not a field with which I'm deeply acquainted, probably not nearly as deeply acquainted as you are with it, Joanna, but I get the impression certainly from, you know, what I can see and read from the outputs of these things that that's not been a huge field of study and negotiation and consideration so far. And I think that's actually what we should be, um, what we should be getting at because you mentioned, you know, to your previous question, when I took you down the rabbit hole, you know, what are the implications for a potential China Taiwan? A wonderful Taiwan rabbit hole. Well, yes, but but there's one of them, you know. So if there is some sort of um, heightened tension or even um, 
uh, hopefully there isn't, but you know, some sort of you know invasion context. Well, what happens there? Um, and, and what? And you know, we should be looking at this experience um, to try to guide us um, as we um, uh, 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 as we face those sorts of situations in the future. And I think that's actually the perfect way to frame it. I certainly want to emphasize at this point that I'm asking these questions not because I'm encouraging people to take up and become volunteers. I'm asking these questions because I want to encourage the scholarship um, of exactly the nature that you're describing. I've been involved in a lot of these conversations and uh, the few times that I have raised this question, the responses has been sort of, no, no, we, we, that's too sensitive, we can't discuss it. And I think that's not the right response. We actually need to look at what can we learn from what's happening in Ukraine uh, so that we can be better prepared if and when um, we're in a situation where, you know, heaven forbid, we're taking up arms ourselves. Um, well, absolutely. And if you look at, you know, if you look at, um, and there was a controversy about this in the UK because um, um, uh, at the start of the conflict, various uh, people in the UK said they wanted to go physically to Ukraine and take up arms. Um uh, a senior government minister who may be the next prime minister sort of was seen to tacitly uh, encourage this. But if you go onto the British government's Ministry of Defence website, it says explicitly, no, you shouldn't do this. Uh, here's the international law um, of uh, armed conflict. Here's what your status would be, etc., etc. Of course, uh, two uh, British immigrants, long-term immigrants to Ukraine uh, who were captured by the um, pro-Russian forces in eastern Ukraine have been sentenced to death on the grounds that they are um, in uh, uh, wrongly and the, the grounds that they are um, in the um, separatists, uh, pro-Russian separatist view uh, mercenaries. They're actually immigrants who have uniformed uh, Ukrainian um, soldiers. Uh, the reason I'm telling that story is that you know there is something if a British citizen feels minded to, um, uh, to toy with the idea of going to Ukraine to fight, the government says something to them about what their situation situation would be yes. in those circumstances yeah. well if a british citizen says i want to hack to help uh, ukraine what do we tell them yeah yeah and there is apart from we strongly discourage you from doing so there is very little official advice in this space and you know i, I again i do have empathy for the officials that are dealing with this situation in the sense that it's sensitive putting out this type of advice takes time and consideration i guess that what i'm hoping this podcast helps to do is to prompt the conversation that allows them to do that in an informed way maybe let's turn away from the really sensitive issue, Kieran, and talk a little bit about something that has really stood out to me as well, which is also non-state actors, but uh, in the sense of the private sector and the role of the private sector in Ukraine. Because I think there have been tech companies, you know, Microsoft has been particularly active on the ground in Ukraine, taking the entirety of Ukraine's government data from on-prem data uh, centres that were being, uh, with bombs being dropped on them to the cloud in a lightning speed period of time. But we've also seen many cybersecurity firms active on the ground, etc. When I was speaking uh, with Ukrainian uh, cyber officials, including Viktor Zora, who anyone who's interested in this, I really recommend you following him on Twitter because he's very discreet in what he puts out. But when he does, it's very considered. Talking with Viktor, listening to the Ukrainian officials describing the early days of the Russian invasion, and the sort of overwhelming amount of support that came from the private sector, 
there really was a sense of it was total chaos. And of course, war is chaos. I appreciate that. But I do wonder in a similar vein to the conversation we just had about uh, hacktivist groups, whether there is something that we can learn in terms of the coordination to better coordinate between private sector, cyber defenders and government and militaries in times of conflict. Is there something that we should be putting in place or policies, et cetera, that we should be considering now uh, in that area? It's really interesting what happened. And again, it's a bit like your segmentation of the non-state actors mm. on behalf of Ukraine. You know, there's a huge divergence of um, what happened with the private sector support. I mean, the starting point of this, of course, is that um, as well as a country like Ukraine or any country um, for that matter, but obviously Ukraine um, facing invasion, um, it has a risk. Uh, it is a set of, um, it has an attack surface that ranges all the way through from high-end military assets all the way through to the disruption of civilian life and you know the Russian attacks around the time of the invasion uh, ranged from Viasat on essentially military communications, albeit provided by the private sector, all the way through to banks and you know government websites and, um, and, 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 and and that sort of thing. The private sector response, I mean, there was um, you know, a sort of almost darkly funny article in the Financial Times about it, I remember reading, where you know, it um, was talking about the sort of private sector uh, surge, if you like, the uh, the US government-sponsored private sector surge. And um, in my mind, a number of other cybersecurity commentators, it sort of rather amusingly conflated what you might call, you know, the really strategically impactful things, you know, um, uh, urgent upgrades to Ukrainian military cybersecurity, the sort of thing you're talking about with Microsoft taking over, if you like, cloud protection of massive data sets, all the way through with putting in DDoS protection and some energy companies and making it sound like the evacuation of Dunkirk. You know, so it was a huge range of activity, um, some of which was quite, um, some of which were quite basic. I think it'd be very hard to codify um, this, but there's something um, you can codify it a bit. And I mean, tentatively, in a very different context, I think the UK has some decent practice here. So, I mean, um, you know, the UK sort of um, in the last 10 years in particular has absolutely jettisoned a hostility to a traditional hostility to private sector threat intelligence and all the capabilities, you know, if it's there, just use it. And actually, the companies, including the American companies and the, the, and the other non-British companies, have been absolutely wonderful in terms of their willingness to um, uh, to share and collaborate. I mean, there's almost a sort of sweet spot of stuff which you know can be useful to the government, and therefore, by definition, it's not really commercially sellable, um, and, they're very, and they're very happy to give it. And we're we're not precious about if it comes from CrowdStrike or whoever. You know, we're very happy to. Uh, certainly, when I was in government, we were always very happy to have it. Um, so, and you know, if I go back, I mean, I'm uh, given what we just had the fifth anniversary of WannaCry. I'm getting lots of people, you know, researching that and so forth. And sure, it was chaotic, and not as chaotic as a full-scale invasion of a sovereign country, but you know, a major incident in the first few weeks of a new organization it was pretty it was pretty chaotic and one of the things that helped was this you know tapestry of um relationships with the with the private sector cybersecurity company um and um you know it's funny if you look at for example um if you contrast it, one of the criticisms of the UK government's um, response to COVID uh, was the fact that actually when the crisis hit, you just didn't have a set of scalable relationships with the private sector. Um, and not only did you not have the infrastructure, you just didn't even have the contacts and the skills and so forth. I think actually in cyber, and hopefully I'm not proved wrong by any sort of uh, uh, subsequent incident, 
um, you might not have a highly refined framework, but you certainly have a lot of contacts and mobilizable capabilities in the private sector. And I think that's a really, really useful thing to have. So you can sort of, um, and, and actually you're a culture people. And I, I hate being over-reliant on culture because, you know, it's very easy for that to go wrong. But you have a set of people who think, well, if the government calls me, um, you know, fully protective, being fully protective of my own private commercial uh, interests and so forth, there is some useful thing we can do. We can collaborate, we can get around, we can deploy things. So I think it is probably worth looking at this carefully and thinking about um, you know, learning the lessons of Ukraine, looking at you know, some good practice in the UK. There's plenty of good practice elsewhere, including in Australia. How do you um, mobilize the scale of the private sector but actually, I think it's doable. And in fact, I think it's it's done. It can be improved. But it's actually a strength of the Western response system, in my view. And I think Ukraine showed that. I mean, you know, for a US-led, and you, know, you can't always were involved, but for a US-led, um, um, if you like, cybersecurity mission to say, like, we'll send over a bunch of guys, uh, you know, men and women from, you know, uniformed um, institutions, but there won't be that many of them. I mean, um, but look at what they're bringing. It's really, really quite impressive. And I, I think the the thing that stands out to me about the, the framework, the, the connections, the contacts, the culture that exists within the cybersecurity community, that is there and is, is readily available to be drawn upon if you're talking about a situation that directly affects Australia. I think it adds an extra dimension when the countries to whom assistance that you're going to is a third country. And I, I think there's something there about the coordination between countries and, and cooperation on the private sector that would be useful. There is, and that prompted me, you know, even, sorry to interrupt, but even in um, peacetime and pre-war time, if you like, um, I think it was 2016, um, the UK and others, you know, um, urged NATO, which was then adopted to do a NATO industry cyber partnership, which is kind of like that, but for NATO. Um, and actually it wasn't just, it wasn't really about emergency capabilities, it was about, um, it was about um, strengthening cyber resilience and defences outside of war. But how do you use the private sector to do it? How do you, um, if you like, know you know what's out there and how to get it? Um, so there was a framework established by NATO to do that, which I thought was really quite powerful. Well, maybe we'll find that and add a link in the in the pod notes. Um, Karen, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I want to ask you uh, two final questions, both of which should be quick ones. One is, despite all of your humility and saying you're not an expert in this field, you have been working in this field for a very, very long time. What is something that you're thinking about, concerned about, that other people aren't talking about that you think we need to be focused on at the moment? Uh, well, I don't have anything um, which nobody's uh, talking about, but I think one of the priorities strategically is text changing and the business model for text changing and the the configuration of tech is changing. Uh, IoT is a great example where you know, instead of being based on free access to web services by giving away lots of personal data, which is what we've had mostly hitherto, you're paying for a product and a service and it's much easier to inspect and regulate and and so forth. And that's why loads of countries, you know, the UK, EU, Singapore, um, are looking at sort of IoT legislation. I think that's a really good um, template for tech of the future, applied AI, quantum. You know, um, we have a massive opportunity in the next 10 years to remedy a structural defect in the way we've done technology because 
to be fair to our predecessors 20, 30 years ago, um, they couldn't foresee how quickly you know the internet-based economy was going to take off and in what way. Now we can't see the contours of future tech, so let's, you know, famously, the internet was not designed with security in mind, but there's a new phase of tech coming through, so let's design it with security in mind. That's the big thing. Um, there's a conversation there with manufacturers, with regulators. It doesn't all have to be regulation. It can be, uh, it can be multiple things. But let's make sure that you know, the new tech that comes online, that we know what broadly it's going to look like, is much safer. Yeah, and I would add safety, security, and privacy, as our e-safety commissioner calls it, the three-legged stool. So, Kieran, the last question we always ask is books, podcasts, recommendations. What do you read when you want to get up to speed on issues, or what would you recommend for people who would like to get up to speed on some of the things that we've been talking about? That is a great uh, question, obviously, on you know international cyber governance and uh, the contestation of cyberspace, then I would uh, recommend uh, you and uh, this. I think on um, on um, I think on uh, books and so forth, I'm very taken by um, what Ben Buchanan has done um, on um, state uh, activity, the, the, the hacker of the state, um, because I think in the light of the war, even though it was published four or five years before the war, um, that sort of analysis of what states do in cyberspace has really been um, has really been borne out. At an organisational level, um, it's almost more like a manual than a book. But Dr. Jessica Barker here in the UK has written this in confident cybersecurity, which is just basically you know if you were just from the point of view of an organisational defender, uh, or you know thinking about the industry as a whole ignoring the geopolitics and just saying look how do you keep something safe it's actually really sort of good at demystifying things so um those would just be some uh, um uh, 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 some suggestions but mostly i think you know the main thing is that people should be curious about this stuff and not scared of it i mean the, the big enemy in all of this is fear be curious don't be scared of it um couldn't think of better words to end on kieran thank you so much for your time not at all thank you very much Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was produced on Ngunnawal lands by Jack Fox. Ben Gowdy provided invaluable research and post-production support. If you would like to support the pod, please give us a five-star rating, or even better, leave us a short review. This really helps us to get the word out. We also love it when you send us questions or comments. We read them all. You can find out more by following us on Tech Policy Design on Twitter or LinkedIn or Google Tech Policy Design Centre and follow the links. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved.